0: listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, Bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. We're continuing our series this morning on the book of Romans, and today we're going to close out chapter one. And to get started, I want to start with a question. What do you picture when you picture God's wrath? What do you picture? Most people throughout most of human history picture something like this. You know, the wrathful god smiting and angry, throwing lightning bolts down. That's what we picture when we picture wrath of God many times. You know, even today, you know, we like to think, you know, we've moved on. We don't really like this picture of God anymore. We We like to think of God as loving and kind, kind of like a big Santa Claus or something. But you know what's interesting? I saw a news article the other day uh, from the city of Chicago. In the city of Chicago, they had this rash of lightning strikes all of a sudden. And so in one month, 18 people just in the city of Chicago were struck by lightning, in one month. And so this reporter for NPR, he decided he was going to go around and interview all these people who had been struck by lightning. And what he found was amazing, because they all said virtually the same thing. Not about being struck by lightning, but about what it meant to be struck by lightning. All different backgrounds, all different beliefs. They all said something like this. Uh, One guy named Mike Bergeron said, my belief is that there's a reason behind it. Georgiana Davies said, in my own opinion, I think God's trying to tell the world something. This one unnamed victim put it real well, they say God's trying to tell us something. Well, God don't try. God is telling us something, and he's telling us, beware. Isn't that amazing? People, all different kinds of beliefs, when they actually get struck by lightning, what do they picture? The lightning bolt guy, the angry, the smiting God. So Let me ask you this morning, is that what God's like? We'll find out. Don't ruin it for everyone. (laughs) Today's passage is all about God's wrath. Feel good sermon of the year, I know. Here's what we're going to find out about God's wrath. We will find out God is good even in His wrath. His wrath is filled with purpose. Because when we understand it rightly, God's wrath redirects our worship. God's wrath. This is the purpose behind it. It redirects our worship. And you may say, "Well, Clint, how can you say that? I mean, who would want to worship lightning bolt guy? I'm going to try to prove it to you. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to examine four things about wrath from this passage. Number one, the reality of wrath. Number two, the reasons for wrath, the results of wrath, and finally, our response to wrath. And hey, with that much alliteration, Sermon can't be all bad, right? Okay, let's read Romans 1. We're going to finish up the chapter. Romans 1, verse 18 through 32. I'll read for us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. These verses, again, are making it clear the reality of God's wrath. But before we get too far, we have to review a little bit. We have to remember last week's sermon. When we talk about verse 16 through 17, and that really was the feel-good sermon of the year because he, it was all about the fact that all the righteousness we need, every ounce of righteousness that you and I need to be right before God, has been and must be given as a gift, accepted by faith. But then the question comes up, and what Paul's trying to address next is, that's wonderful, but who accepts that gift? Well, the one who needs it. That's who. And so Paul is saying, that person, the one who needs that gift, is you. It's you and me. You and I are in need of that gift, not because it's our birthday, but because we are under God's wrath. How do we think about wrath? How do we understand God's wrath? Well, here's probably the best way. Wrath is a response based on God's character. Now, notice I didn't say wrath is God's character. It's a response that's based on His character. So what's His character? Well, God is lots of things. He's forbearing, He's gracious, He's loving, He's long-suffering, and in His character, He is holy and He is just. And so His wrath is a function of that holiness and that justice. So here's another way to think about it. Where there is no wrath... Or, where there is no sin, there's no wrath. But there remains the holiness and justice of God because that's his character. Do you see that? You see the difference? And so, when God, in his character, confronts his creation in all out rebellion because of his character, there must necessarily be wrath. But we see here, his wrath isn't arbitrary. Okay? It only comes to those who deserve it. That's all. That's it. Well, okay, we should find out who that is. Who are the ones that deserve God's wrath? Well, he tells us right off the bat, verse 18, all ungodliness and unrighteousness. All commentators agree that greatest commandments are in view here. You know, they ask Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He said, I'll give you two. Love God, love your neighbor. The love of God, that is godliness Love of people, that is righteousness. And this is what we find all through Scripture. All God, the creator of the universe, all He has ever asked of us is that we would love and worship Him and that we would love people and act justly toward the rest of His creation. That's all He's ever asked for us. That's all He wants. That's why Jesus, that's why He said the whole law, all of it can be summed up in those two commandments, love God and love people. And so, Anyone who loves God and loves people all the time doesn't have to worry about God's wrath. And if that's you, you're dismissed. I've got nothing else for you. You know, and Paul is interesting. He he anticipates probably the most common response anytime we talk about God's wrath. Well, 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 that's not fair. Hold on. What about? I mean, I know, I know better. But what about all the people who don't know? They don't know better. What about them? That doesn't seem fair. And so here, Paul makes probably the most shocking claim in this passage. In response to, hey, it's not fair, he says, everyone knows God. Everyone knows God. You, everyone you know, everyone you don't know, whether they've ever entered a church or opened the Bible, and no matter how hard they claim to not believe in a God, they know God. He says in verse 9, in fact, it's not hard. God has made it plain. He has made it obvious. How did He do that? Verse 20, by creation. Paul's saying from the moment He created, His existence is clear to that creation. You know, this summer I got to go with a team to Seattle uh, on a mission trip, and it was beautiful up there. There's one particular night, you know, Seattle's on the ocean, and so we went out to this beach, this gorgeous beach, this beautiful ocean. It was nice and calm. And we went in the early evening just as the sun was going down. And so as that sun's going down, it was this gorgeous orange sunset on the clouds. And as if that weren't enough, you'll look over here and there's this beautiful mountain range. You can kind of see the silhouette of all the mountains. And then if you keep turning over here, there's Mount Rainier uh, hovering over Seattle. We got that picture. up, And the picture doesn't do it justice. It was gorgeous. It was like all the beautiful parts of nature all in one. The beach, the mountains, the sunset, it was all there. Paul is saying when you see something like that, it tells you something. That's enough for you to know at least two things about God. Number one, there is a God. Number two, I'm not Him. Because I didn't put that there. The famous scientist Isaac Newton said this, The most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not just as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all. We all know enough to know that. And so, his wrath is evermore a reality because no one can claim ignorance. That's what Paul's saying here. But wow, okay, so wrath is a reality, but what's the reason for the wrath? Why is that wrath directed at me and at you? Well, what do we do with this truth that has been made very, very plain to us? What do we do with it? Are there any conspiracy theorists in the house? Anyone just love a great conspiracy, especially when Netflix makes a documentary about it? I love those. Well, this is for you. The biggest conspiracy the world has ever known. In fact, we're all in on it. And anyone who ever lives is all in on it. Paul says we suppress the truth. And notice what we suppress it with. Not with ignorance. You know, I I didn't know. I just didn't know. Not with honest mistakes. There's no whoops-a-daisies here. Not by our objective weighing of all the evidence and picking the best response. No, we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness, he says in verse 18. Have you ever held a beach ball underwater? You know, you got to get both hands on it, you got to push it down real good and real hard. Man, you got to stay on that thing, right? Because if that thing even rolls up a little bit, man, that thing will just pop up right out of water, won't it? Paul is saying our sin is the hands we use to constantly suppress and push down the truth He reveals to us. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. You know, we like to think that our minds are neutral, right? That each and every one of us, we objectively weigh the evidence in front of us and make the best decision, men and women. Paul's saying that's not how it works at all. That is not how it works. Your mind is a slave to your heart. you know which truths we accept? The ones we want to be true. That's what he's saying. We accept only the truths we want to be true. I realized exactly what Paul is saying here a couple days ago when I sat down and ate a delicious hot dog. Man, it was good. And you know what? Every time I I sit and eat a hot dog, I'm suppressing the truth of what's in that hot dog, right? And how it's made, the whole thing. I don't want to know why don't I want to know? Because it's delicious. It would ruin the experience for me, right? I don't want to know. Dr. Ashley Knoll put it this way, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So why don't we believe the truth about God? Because we don't want God. We don't want Him. That's why. He says in verse 21, we don't say thank you to Him. No, instead we take credit for ourselves. He says we refuse to honor Him and instead we're filled with our own self-importance. He says in verse 28, we don't even see fit to acknowledge His existence. Look around your life. Tell me if that's true. How much attention does God get in our entertainment in our news, in our media, even in our conversation, even in your own thoughts and words every day. He's the most important reality in the world. How much attention does He get in your life? We don't want God. But here's the trick. We were created to worship, and so we have to worship something. But we don't want it to be Him. And so what Paul does is he walks us through a series of exchanges we make, as if God were some crummy gift we got at our birthday party that we don't want, so we take it back to the store to exchange it for something else. Verse 23, we exchange the glory of God for images of creation. So instead of worshiping the one who is infinitely bigger than me, infinitely other than me, I create something that looks a whole lot like me, that I can worship. Or I'll even create something that's beneath me and I can control and worship that. Isn't that fascinating? It's almost as if what I'm really doing is making me as close to a God as I can be. Verse 25, he says, We exchange the truth for a lie. Well, what's the lie? That a creature rather than the creator is worthy of worship. That's the lie we exchange it for. You know, this really doesn't work how we often think it does. And Paul gives us a little clue into how this works. In verse 24, he says, each and every one of us is driven by our lust. That word lust in the original language is epithomia. And a literal translation is it would be over-desire. And that's a great word picture of what Paul is describing here. So the picture is the desire that on its own, in its right place, is not bad. But when it spreads out of control, when it becomes an over-desire we got problems. So think about the fire in your fireplace. In that fireplace, that fire is a wonderful thing. It's warm. You know, you got the nice, pleasant crackle. You can make s'mores. You could even roast a hot dog if you want to, right? It's great. But if that fire spreads to your whole house, it's destructive, isn't it? You want to know how to to find the over-desire in your life? It's always that thing that you can't imagine living without. Whatever that is, that thing that you can't imagine living without. And since you can't live without it, you decide to make an exchange in your life. Some of you can't live without people liking and accepting you. And listen, that comes from a desire that is good to belong and to have community. And that is all great until it becomes an over desire, and you become consumed by it, and then that thing becomes an idol, so you make an exchange, and you exchange pleasing God for pleasing others. There's some here, the worst thing you can think about, the worst thing you can imagine is being a nobody. No respect, no reputation, no accomplishments, and that desire to accomplish has become an over-desire, and it's taken over your life. So you make an exchange, and you exchange making his name big for making my name big. What Paul is driving here at here, men and women, is that there is really only one reason for God's wrath. There's just one reason. It's idolatry. The reason for wrath is always wrong worship, every single time. So what's the result of this wrath when it comes to? Here again, Paul shows us a pattern that he repeats over and over again. This exchange that we do leads to a specific response from God. And this is where we get the God of the lightning bolt a little bit wrong. So we see it four times, verse 21, 24, 26, 28. Here's what God does in response to this exchange that we make. He gives us over to what we want. He doesn't smite. He doesn't throw down a lightning bolt. He simply removes his hand of restraint that it turns out was there all along. Men and women, there are no scarier verses in all of Scripture. Oscar Wilde said it this way, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. This is hard for us to understand sometimes because most of our laws have penalties that come with them. So you speed, you're going to get a fine. You steal something, you're going to get arrested. Even if you just litter or something, you're going to have to pay something. Have you ever wondered, though, why we don't have a law against jumping out of an airplane without a parachute? I mean, it seems like a big deal. Shouldn't we have, like, at least you pay a fine or you're not invited back, something like that, maybe? The penalty is built in, isn't it? That's how God wrath works so many times. God hands us over to the destruction built into our idolatry. But think about the people pleaser. What's the worst thing that can happen to a people pleaser? Applause. That's the worst thing because it further solidifies to them that they don't need God and they will slip farther and farther into their idolatry and farther and farther away from worshiping God. Or the workaholic. What's the worst thing that can happen to a workaholic? They get a promotion, right? Because then it will only feed their pride, further encourage them to neglect their family, blind them to the needs of others, and blind them even to their own needs. And Now, they're even more of a slave to that idol. And Paul goes on to show us where this eventually leads. Verse 24, it starts with our most intimate relationships. Verse 26 and 27 is the longest pa- passage on same-sex attraction in the Bible. And since it's just such a relevant issue in our culture, I feel we must speak to it briefly. It's an issue our culture largely deals with by going to two extremes, and you've got to be one or the other. But both are unbiblical, and both have tragic consequences. To make it worse, our culture puts each response at war with each other and then demands that each and every person here pick a side. This makes it a very emotionally charged topic, and I'm aware of that. And so I would ask for a gracious ear from all of us. The first extreme is this. It said it's totally okay. No problem. Nothing to talk about. Understandably, it comes from secular culture, and increasingly the stance demands total agreement as a prerequisite for any type of relationship. I experienced this also in Seattle, so there was a day we were riding the bus and just striking up conversations and talking with folks, and I ended up sitting down next to and talking with a man who was a counselor for the LGBTQ community. And so I would sit down with him and start a conversation, and it was a good conversation. It was a gracious conversation, but we eventually arrived at an impasse just around uh, this extreme. And it happened when I asked, you know, what are, what are the needs you see in the community around here and in the people that you know that maybe a church could step into and help with? And he said, you know, most of the people I work with, all of them, their biggest need is that they are lonely and isolated. You know, they need friends, they need community, and the places most people find them, their family, their church, their hometown, they have been isolated from. And I understood that. I, of course, have compassion for that. So I said, surely, surely the church can step in and somehow meet some of that need, even though we believe differently, because surely all of them don't believe exactly the same about everything. To which he said, no, 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 no. We can disagree about anything else, but never this. Until you accept that this is okay, there can be no relationship. So We find ourselves at an impasse, as our culture does increasingly. But you know, it's not just from the secular side. Increasingly, I think in order to avoid this exact same impasse, increasingly Christians are trying to make arguments from the text that it's totally okay. And so I'd like to uh, open up the text and examine those arguments. And recently, even uh, Jen Hatmaker, one of the most popular Christian writers and speakers in the country, took this exact same stance. So let's look at the argument. So first argument comes from Paul's use of the word natural in verse 26 and 27. And the argument goes like this. What, what Paul's sa- Paul saying is, what is sin is doing what's unnatural to you. And so in the example Paul provides, the only women committing sin would be the ones who are naturally oriented toward men, but are acting against that. All kinds of arguments against that, but the primary one is found in the text. Very next verse, verse 28. Because Paul reframes, he restates the problem, not as going against what's natural, but he restates it as being consumed with passion. Well, what do we mean by a natural inclination other than where our passions are directed? So, as Paul states the issue in verse 28, it's, it's, the issue isn't just going against natural inclinations. In fact, according to verse 28, the sin can be acting according to our natural passions. Second argument says that the Bible only condemns adultery and promiscuity, the Bible never condemns monogamous committed marriage of any kind, so the argument goes. The problem with that argument is the phrase Paul uses, unnatural relations, had a very specific meaning in Paul's culture. It was a euphemism for the entire category. So you can go look at other texts from same culture, same time, use that exact same wording, and they are never, never differentiating between promiscuity and monogamy. They are always referring to the whole category. So what Paul is saying would have been very plain to him and to his original audience. Finally, in that culture, marriage of this kind wasn't even conceived of. And so it doesn't make sense to ask Paul to specifically condemn something that wasn't even feasible. It would be like asking him to specifically condemn nuclear missiles. No one would have known what he was talking about. So clearly, the arguments about the text that this is a sin that is totally okay, do not hold water. So let's talk about the other extreme. The other extreme says, this is the worst sin. Or if we're not willing to say that, at least it is different in how we should handle it. This is largely the stance the church has adopted, even if not formally, then informally, talking about the church at large. I'd like to first explain what I see are some of the consequences of the stance, and then we will look at the text and explain a proper understanding from Scripture. I believe this stance has made it very difficult for who, those who struggle with this, in, this inclination to find God. That same discussion on that bus in Seattle, I asked the counselor, well, listen, are any of the people you work with, are they religious? Are they spiritual? Do they have faith of any kind? To which he replied, and it was heartbreaking, yes, but they've been so pushed out of their churches, they have no place to explore or practice their faith in any way. I ask you to imagine for a moment that you have cancer, and you go to a hospital, and you talk to this doctor, and you hear the great news, they have the cure. You will be completely cured. But the next breath, he tells you, however, in this hospital, we don't accept sick people. So you have to go first, get rid of your cancer before you can come here for the cure. Unfortunately, the church has become like that hospital for many people the message we send is fix yourself, then come here. Men and women, when we send that message, we refuse to give others the very cure that has healed us. The only sinner, the only sinner that can successfully battle their sin is a saved sinner. The relationship with Jesus comes first. You and I and everyone else has to know Jesus and walk with Him in every moment of our lives if we have any hope of conquering sin. So it's my prayer, and Mark's as well, that Bethel will be a place where those who experience this temptation can come and meet Jesus, receive His provision for them through the people of God, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God, the same hope for all. I think one thing we underestimate as well is we make it very hard for friends and family members too often. There are many, even in this church, with friends and family members who struggle with same-sex attraction. I fear sometimes we've oversimplified the truly difficult situations and conundrums they can find themselves in. I've got to be be honest, some of the most difficult ethical situations a Christ follower can find themselves in today involve this issue. And i be—I uh, got to confess, i got to be honest. Many times, there are situations that are, arise, I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know what you do. It's difficult. It's hard. I do know, unfortunately, that many who desire nothing more than to follow Jesus and love the people in their lives to the best of their ability are simply told to make a stand as if God needs us to stand up for Him. Or too often, they are unloaded upon with unsolicited opinions. Men and women, neither of these responses help us bear one another's burdens, nor do they appreciate the inherent tensions, complexities, and pain in many situations. Instead, they create a culture of silence in the church. That's why here at Bethel, this place has to be a safe place to say, hey, somebody I love is a homosexual and not be met with whispers, gossip, and judgment. Unfortunately, this is what the church has turned into for too many. So now let's examine from the text what the Scriptures say and how we may correct it. While this approach is unbiblical, it's because the worst thing you can do, the worst thing you can do is get to the end of verse 27 and say, I'm not like them. In fact, if that's you, let me just tell you, Paul is setting you up. He's setting you up. He is going fishing and he has baited his hook for your pride and self-righteousness. First of all, he destroys that argument. In verse 24, you back up and he talks about the lust of our heart, the dishonoring of our bodies. Those are general terms. He's talking about all forms, all forms of acting upon desire outside of marriage between a man and a woman, whatever form it takes. It's all getting lumped in together. And then in verse 29 through 31, he lists 21 sins, 21 sins in three verses, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Parents, give your kids a nudge for this one. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, have I left anyone out. Surely we all find ourselves in this list. In fact, we find every area of our lives in this list. Our economic life, when he talks about our covetousness and our greed, our social life, when he says we're filled with murder, strife, deceit, malice, we see the family breakdown. In fact, we see the breakdown of all relationships when Paul identifies us as foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Surely, surely, you would have to agree millions more will be condemned because of this list than verse 26 and 27. Notice, it's the exact same flow of thought in 29 through 31 and in 26 through 27. In fact, the whole passage, we see the same thing. We refuse to worship God, so we make an exchange to worship something else so God, in his wrath, gives us over to what we want. Paul is saying all sin is a worship issue. In fact, he will drive the point home. The very next verse, the first verse of chapter 2, he's, he's going to shift from talking about them to talking about you. He's going to make a change from talking about all them, all those evil heathen out there, and he will say, so therefore, you have no excuse. Wait, what? I thought you were talking about them. Why? Well, because you, Judge, you who have been reading this filled with your self-righteousness have no excuse. may well, say, well, why? Why me? What? I thought, well, what if I'm not on the list? Because you do the very same things. may say, what, what are you talking about, Paul? I've been faithful to my life for 25 years, and Paul says, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your idolatry. That's what I'm talking about. That is why you are under God's wrath, because you've exchanged worship. See, Paul's goal here is not, it's not to convince you that homosexuality is wrong or to point out all the really bad people. His goal is to reveal your idolatry to yourself. He's trying to wake us up You may ask, okay, if this is all of us, if God's wrath is justly and rightfully directed at all of us, do we have any hope? Paul gives us two possible responses. Before I give you those two, I'd like to first point out the only reason we have any hope, the only reason we have an option of a response is because God's grace is in his wrath. In verse 18, he he says, God's wrath is being revealed, It, it is a current, present, ongoing reality. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like good news, but think about this. We know this isn't the fullness of His wrath, don't we? We know that there's a future judgment that we have not yet experienced yet. So why doesn't God just pour all the wrath, all of it out right now? What Paul is saying is that God is revealing a little bit of His wrath now in hopes of getting our attention, trying to wake us up to the truth that we want to suppress. So for now, at least, there is time to respond. Option A, first response is this. He says in verse 32, we can continue deeper into our idolatry. He says we do this not only when we refuse to admit that we are wrong, then we turn around and we approve, promote, and encourage others to join us. And I ask you, isn't that our natural response? Have you ever encouraged your children to make an idol out of their grades, their athletics? for their reputation? Have you ever wanted someone to join you in your jealousy or your envy of another? Have you ever pulled or coaxed gossip out of someone so you could share in that juicy tidbit? Too often, this is our response. But listen, that's not how Paul is hoping you'll respond. There's another option you can redirect your worship to God. So here's what Paul's doing. Here's what, here's what Paul is talking about, the wrath. You say, oh, that's no fun. Why, why can't we just skip to the good parts? Paul is talking about wrath to make you love the gospel. He is teaching you how great the gift is by showing you how much you need the gift. So he wants you to read this in, ver, in light of verse 16 and 17 again. All the righteousness of God... All the righteousness he requires is mine by faith. See, I wasn't faithful. I didn't honor God. I didn't give thanks to him. But Jesus did. And he gives me all of that righteousness. And what about that wrath? It's not pointed at me anymore. It's not directed at me anymore. It was directed at Jesus. And he took all of that wrath for you and for me. And you can accept that by faith this morning and be restored to worshiping God. So you've heard about God's wrath. Which direction will you go? Will you continue further into your idolatry or will you redirect your worship to the holy God? We'll close with a picture of what it looks like when people turn to the gospel, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul is writing to another church, And he gives them another list, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sound familiar? It's a very similar list. But he's writing to their church, he's writing to the redeemed. So we get to verse 11. And such were some of you. But. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. May this place, may Bethel be a place where we can come in with idols and struggles of every kind, but when we leave, we have been washed, sanctified, justified, and worship the one true God. We're going to close this morning with a picture of that gospel transformation as we take the Lord's Supper together. So I'm going to invite Steve to come on up and lead us through communion together. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.